court. Curry with eight. Pass to Livingston. Out in the corner. Iguodala wide open three. Hits it. Oh, Six seconds left. Andre Iguodala with a game two dagger from the left corner. Just like we all drew it up, like we all thought it would happen, Andre Iguodala is somewhat the hero in Game 2. He had the biggest shot in Game 2, the dagger with less than six seconds to play to put Golden State up by five. They would hang on for the 109-104 win over Toronto. It is a sports pen here on ESPN-UP. Tanner Hoops with you Monday afternoon. Delighted to have you as always. Over the course of the next hour, we've got plenty to break down, including track and field. We've got the Wisconsin Sports Report. We've got NHL, NBA Finals. But we're going to start with college baseball. It's something that's not getting talked about enough. I don't know why. I love this time of the year. I love the NCAA baseball tournament. Ten teams have already punched their ticket to the Super Regionals this weekend. The final six spots will be awarded tonight. Here's how the bracket's looking right now. Here are the teams that are moving on to the Super Regional round. You've got a conference matchup as Arkansas takes on Ole Miss, an SEC battle. You've got Texas Tech, who's moved on. They're still awaiting their opponent. That will be decided later this evening. How about this Super Regional? Maybe the most interesting to watch this weekend. Florida State against LSU in Baton Rouge. You've got Mike Martin, the sport's all-time winningest head coach, going up against Paul Maneri. There will not be an empty seat at Alex Box Stadium in Baton Rouge this weekend. That is going to be the Super Regional to watch. You have Duke and Vanderbilt. They're going to vie for a chance to go to Omaha. Mississippi State is already through. They do not yet know their opponent. And finally, North Carolina takes on Auburn. All those teams have already punched their ticket to the Super Regionals. The final six spots will be handed out over the course of the day. We've got a couple that are already in progress. And once we get results from those... We'll be sure to pass those on. You've got Illinois State and Louisville that are battling in Louisville right now for a chance to move on to the Super Regionals. Same with East Carolina and Campbell. Then games that are coming up later, you've got a pair of games at 7 o'clock, including the Michigan Wolverines as they take on the Creighton Blue Jays. Michigan beat Creighton 6-0 on Friday. Creighton got revenge with an 11-7 win last night. It's a winner-take-all battle tonight on ESPN2. First pitch is set for 7 o'clock. The other 7 o'clock game is on ESPN3. That is UConn in Oklahoma State in Oklahoma City. The winner is on to the Super Regionals. And then a pair of games at 10 o'clock this evening. If you want to stay up and watch those, you've got Loyola Marymount, who upset the top national seed UCLA a couple of days ago. They are going to meet again. This time with a spot in the Super Regionals on the line. Loser sees their season come to an end. And then Stanford takes on Fresno State. Again, winner take all. You move on to the Super Regionals. And I said last week when we were discussing this tournament that I thought the Stanford Regional was the toughest. You have the one and the three seed. Sacramento State is a pretty good four seed. Santa Barbara arguably shouldn't have been a two seed. Yet they were and they were stuck in that regional. They've already been eliminated. On top of all that, you've got the Astros and Mariners this evening. That will throw the first pitch at 10 o'clock as well, and that will be on ESPN. So if you like baseball, this is a good day for you, particularly because you've got the MLB draft coming up tonight as well. That's something not a lot of people are talking about, or at least they're not talking about enough. So I tell you what, let's break it down for you while we have you here. The Baltimore Orioles get the first overall pick, and I don't remember a time when the first overall pick in any sport was going to be easier than this one. Adley Rauchman, the catcher from Oregon State, the defending national champions, he is going to be the first overall pick tonight. It has not been this easy. Maybe as comparable as it's been in baseball was in 2012 
When the Astros took Carlos Correa, everybody knew it was coming. Rochman is one of the best power-hitting catchers in all of baseball this year. He was intentionally walked with the bases loaded this weekend during regional play. It's good news for him after his team was eliminated shy of a super regional bid. There's two teams left in the Corvallis Regional. Neither of them are the defending champions for Morgan State. It's Creighton in Michigan. But I tell you what, Rochman is going to feel a whole lot better because he will hear his name called number one overall tonight. He will become just the sixth catcher taken first overall in the MLB draft. You can put an asterisk next to that, though. One, because it hasn't happened yet. It will at 7 o'clock tonight when the draft opens. Two, Steve Chilcott was the first ever catcher drafted number one overall. He was taken by the Mets in 1966. Then the Padres took Mike Ivey first overall in 1970. Danny Goodwin was selected by the White Sox a year later but did not sign. He re-entered the draft in 1975. That time he did sign when he was drafted by the Angels. So five catchers have been taken first overall, but only four different guys. The fifth, by the way, the most recent one was 2001 when the Minnesota Twins took Joe Maurer. Joey Bart was taken second overall last year by San Francisco. That's the highest since Maurer a catcher has been taken until tonight when Adley Rutschman will become the sixth catcher taken first overall in the MLB draft. Danny Goodwin, that's a great trivia question, by the way. Who is the only player, not just catcher, only player taken first overall twice in the MLB draft? So with that, let's talk about the Tigers and the Brewers, who they might be selecting, who they have their eye on tonight. Detroit will draft fifth overall, Milwaukee 28th. The Tigers right now, they're probably going to get Riley Green. He's an outfielder at Haggerty High School in Orlando, Florida. They have their sights set on Andrew Vaughn. He's the first baseman at Cal. The Golden Spikes winner this year. He's been fantastic in the batter's box for the Golden Bears this year. However, he's hampered by his inability to play anywhere but first base. Despite that, the White Sox are probably going to take him number three overall. If for some reason they pass on him, and the Marlins do too, because I believe the Marlins are going to go with an outfielder from Vanderbilt, then that means Vaughn could make his way to Detroit. I think that's who they want, but I don't think they're going to get him. I'm not even sure that the White Sox want Vaughn. He may just be the best available player to fill a need that they have at number three overall. The White Sox learned their lesson the hard way about drafting players right out of high school. They're going to go with a college guy. Here's another good trivia question. The last time the White Sox used a top 10 draft pick on a high school player, you have to go all the way back to 1985 when they took Kurt Brown one pick ahead of Barry Bonds. They learned their lesson. They may want a high school kid as highly touted as he may be. They are not going to use a top 10 pick on a high school player. The safe bet for them is Andrew Vaughn out of Cal. I know that's who the Tigers really want. If something goes wrong in the White Sox office, they don't pick up Vaughn. That's a big win for the Tigers. Let's switch over to the Brewers. They're picking 28th in the first round this year. I don't think that they're high enough to get somebody they're really in love with, that they really, really want, and they're going to take the best available option that falls to them, much like a lot of teams do when you get to that point in the draft. The guy they really seem to be high on is Brett Beatty, a third baseman at Lake Travis High School in Austin, Texas. Beatty fundamentally has been pretty good, doesn't particularly seem to stand out in any direction. He's just a sound fielder, a sound hitter, a guy you can seem to put in about any part of the lineup. Fangraphs has him listed as the 14th overall prospect. MLB Pipeline has him at 17th. So it's unlikely that he falls to the Brewers at 28th overall if they trade up to get him, I think would be unlikely. 
Your best bet that a guy like Beatty is going to go to Arizona. Arizona's got four of the top 34 picks this year. They've got two compensatory picks at the 33rd and 34th slots, plus their two first-rounders. Beatty's a guy that might take a little bit of time getting up to the major league level. He's fundamentally sound everywhere, but not really standing out in any aspect. However, his upside is good enough. If you pass on him and somebody like the Dodgers or the Padres or a divisional rival picks him up, then you're kicking yourselves. Then you're probably a general manager that's getting fired. So who will the Brewers end up with? There's a slim possibility that shortstop Matthew Lugo could fall all the way to 28. Lugo attends the Carlos Beltran Baseball Academy in Puerto Rico. He's already committed to play at Miami next year. However, if the right team signs him for the right price, he might consider jumping on their train right now. ESPN is projecting him to go 22nd overall to the Rays, who really aren't that in love with him. They aren't looking for a guy like that, at least not looking for a shortstop with their first overall pick. They're hoping that somebody of quality caliber falls to number 22 overall. They got a steal in the first round of last year's draft. Will it be the same this year? The Brewers are hoping so, so that gives them a better chance of picking up Lugo when he comes around. Lugo, as fundamentally sound as he is, the biggest worry about him is will he go to college. He's got a sweet deal with Miami right now. Can go to a really good baseball program and play there for a few years. Right now, ESPN is projecting that the Brewers will go with Cam Meisner, an outfielder from the University of Missouri. And that sounds like a consolation prize for the Brewers, but it hardly is. He was drafted in the 33rd round three years ago by Kansas City, but he chose to go to college instead. And he has been excellent for Mizzou. He can play both corner outfield spots. He's six foot four, 219 pounds, a reliable power bat you can stick in the middle of any lineup. And yet he's fast. He runs well for his big hulking size. He stole 35 bases this year. I don't know that the Brewers are looking for another outfielder, but Meisner, it's a pretty good pickup, especially at 28th overall. He may very well be the steal of this first round, providing Milwaukee goes for him. The MLB draft gets started tonight at 7 o'clock, and we'll be sure to recap what you missed tomorrow. First two rounds are tonight, then rounds 3 through 10 will start tomorrow at 1 o'clock. Hey, I'll tell you what, before we go to break, let's shift gears just slightly. This afternoon, Northern Michigan announced their 2019 Sports Hall of Fame inductees. Let's go through them while we have a moment. Penty Jordan was a Nordic skier for the Wildcats, graduated in 1981. He also made the NCAA National Championship all four years of college. He was sixth place as a freshman and sophomore in both 78 and 79. He finished third in 80 and 81. They're also inducting Tim Schultz. He was a wrestler at Northern Class of 1983. He was a four-year letter winner, three-time national qualifier, including a third-place finish at the NCAA National Championship in 1982, and he earned All-American status. He finished his career with 102 wins. That is sixth in NMU wrestling history. Later went on to coach high school wrestling at Marquette Senior for 11 years. Scott Seibel of the Northern Michigan Football Program, Class of 1983. He was a four-year Better winner with the Wildcat football team, and he led the nation in receiving yards in 1979 with 1,219. Went on to sign a free agent contract with Green Bay in 1982. After one season with the Packers, Scott finished his career with the Canadian Football League. Lisa Tomchek Goodman, part of the 1985 swimming graduating class. She spent four years as a diver with the Northern Michigan Swim and Diving Team, and she earned All-American status in both the 1- and 300-meter boards during each season. 
She also won a national championship as a senior after finishing second in the nation as a junior. Julie Wondershelt of the Northern basketball team graduated 1994. She played just two seasons with the Northern women's basketball team, but she holds a record for career points per game at 21.1, most points in a season at 715, season points per game at 25.5, and free throws made in a single game with 18. She was named Newcomer of the Year in 1992, second team all GLIAC and NCAA Regional Tournament MVP. In 93, she earned GLIAC Player of the Year honors, and she was team MVP. And finally, the 2007 Women's Nordic Ski Team will be inducted into the Northern Athletic Hall of Fame. They went to the national tournament and they made history as the first team to ever sweep the podium in all the Nordic events. Those are the 2019 inductees into the Northern Michigan Athletic Hall of Fame class. Again, that came out earlier this afternoon. We'll have more on that story as it develops. We owe you our first time out. When we come back, the UP track finals were held in Kingsford this Saturday. You're going to hear from a coach who had a really good day despite his team entering as underdogs. No one told them that. That's next in the Sports Pen on ESPN-UP. Check out the UP's live and local sports talk show, The Sports Pen. Weekday afternoons at 4 on ESPN-UP and on the ESPN-UP app. Welcome back to the Sports Pen on ESPN-UP. Tanner Hoops with you. Glad to have you along. Well, the UP track and field finals were held Saturday in Kingsford. The Ishpeming Hematites were pretty much considered underdogs, missing a few key components, but they turned out to be the team to watch. It was a spectacular day for the blue and white as they take the boys' title while the girls finish as runner-ups. With that, we're joined by head coach P.J. Pruitt. Coach, appreciate you taking the time. Congrats on all your success. Thank you very much. Um, it was quite the birthday present. Uh, it was my birthday present on uh, Saturday for Sunday. So last year I had a birthday present on June 2nd. We won the finals last year, and this was my present for me this year. So the kids really came through. Well, Coach, let's start with your boys. You rack up 128 team points. You win first over second by 44 points, and you did it while missing two of the fastest runners in the Upper Peninsula. How'd you do it? When you're missing two of the best, you have to try to go get every point that we possibly could. So I went and we looked at all our weaknesses in the last couple of weeks with the other coaches, and we worked on all our weaknesses and tried to bring our weaknesses up. Um, I knew that I, I, I basically knew that we could beat Newberry. I mean, you look at our regionals. We ran a regional on pavement. They ran one on um, on, on poly track. And our times were slower, but I know that my kids could be mentally tough, so we mentally prepared them all week, and the coaches and myself prepared them, and they they did their job. So there was never a confidence issue going into it? You, you know, you take Hunter Smith and you take Matthew Trey, like they're very fast athletes. They're going to Michigan Tech for scholarships, and they got some injuries, and they couldn't, couldn't run them. But, you know, they're in, they, would have, they would have been in the top two in 100 and 200, and then... Uh, 400 and 800 relay, um, you're talking that 25% of my team, of my scoring being gone, so we had to figure out how we are going to compete. And then when Trewick got hurt in regionals, we threw a 800 relay team together and got disqualified. So I can came to the UPs without even an 800 relay team. Instead of talking about who you were missing, let's talk about who was there and who brought home titles for you. You picked up titles in the 400, 800, 1600, 3200. What were the keys to your success in the running events? The, the keys for our success in the running events was that regionals try to get as many um, 
athletes through. Um, I'm a I'm a running coach, so I'm a you know cross country coach. So that's where I get my points. I'm not very good at track and or field field events. I mean, we have field events, but I got to get my points where where I where I'm very good at coaching 400 and up. So from the 400 up, we really tried to get two kids in each event. Um, last year, we won the UP finals, and we only had one number one uh, person take number one. And that was Hart Homgren in the long jump. Well, this year, we're losing Trawick and, and Smith, that we knew that we had to come up with number one places to win the meet. So Sundberg had, had, to, had to do it. Prowitz had to do it. Broberg had to do it. And, and they did it. You know, um, I knew my 1600 relay, we were suffering there all year. Um, we had to, them kids had to bring up their splits. I mean, uh, they took third in the UP finals, which is great for them. And they did bring up their splits. So stuff like that, I'll, I'll help, you know. Uh, Owen Morton is a, a good thrower. You know, I knew Kulik was going to give me points, but I didn't know that Owen Morton would be able to give me points. So we worked on that all week. All the, all the throwers, PR'd. I mean, they threw their best because, you know, we, we, we went after them points, you know. And uh, so it was quite the accomplishment. The jump that you mentioned from last year to this year, was that just the flip of a mental switch? Yeah, um, to a point. I mean, you know, you, didn't, you had Hart Homgren, you could high jump and long jump, and you had him running in relays. Uh, we had... You know, where I made my mistake, you know, you look at school records, if I would have took, if I, you know, at one time I had Trewick healthy, I had Sumberg healthy, I had Prowitz, uh, the hurdler healthy. If I would have put all four kids in the 400 relay, we would have had a 400 relay school record that wouldn't be beat forever. And them kids got speed. And uh, just trying different things beginning here before the kids got hurt, I wasn't able to, to line that up that way. And uh, I wish I would have because it would have been interesting to have all of them four fast kids in one relay. Well, Coach, you mentioned that the running events are where you really like to make your money, but you had success elsewhere, too, in addition to your running titles. Colton won the long jump. Uh, he also won the 300 hurdles. Tell me about some of your field events and the success those kids had. Well, our field events is we go, I go and I try to get really good coaches. We get, you know, uh, I try to get assistant coaches that can come in and out, and and and, and uh, we have a lot of co- coaching staff. So I mean, not everything is up to me. So we go, we go, and I go, and I get at somebody that's really good at long jump, like Brad Lucky. I get somebody that's also good with uh, shot and disc, like Bree Bancroft. So I, I go, and, and you know, might not they might not come every day, but I get them enough to do that, and I do that with a hurdling coach. Um, the hurdlers. After they learn how to hurdle, I just condition them. So, but we have a you know good hurdling coach, good field event coach, and we put all that together, and that's what happens. And you know they all knew what they had to do. I knew Prowitz knew he had to, but Prowitz he was so inefficient in the long jump during the year. He could be the best jumper in the UP, and then he could scratch. And that was a gamble that I had to do because I would have put him in something else, but I left him in the long jump. I'm with P.J. Pruitt, the head track and field coach at Ishpeming Hematite. Boys win the UP Finals on Saturday. Girls finish as runner-ups. Coach, tell me about the way that you've seen this team progress from start to finish this year. Tell me where they really made the most strides. Um, what made the most strides was towards the end of the year. Um, um, I, w- I came in here with an undefeated cross-country season, 
you know, for the whole UP and parts of Wisconsin. So we had good distance runners. And, you know, I knew I'd get my points in the distance. But, you know, to have start off with a, with a team, we went 6-0. and oh, And them are big meets that we won. Um, then losing the two fast sprinters. And then have some other kind of injuries, which kind of scared me, but they were just minor. And so I had to hold back in the two conference meets with my athletes. And I could have went after them conference titles, but I decided not to compete uh, to compete competitively because I was afraid to hurt more kids and then go into the UP finals and I'd be lower than what I was. So I had to hold back. And that was the hardest thing to do is to hold back when you're used to competing and doing well. So we held back and we, you know, and then it was probably the right thing to do because we won the UPs and we were on paper the underdogs. So that was the best part of the season coming in and holding back with these kids and then be able to compete in the big beat. Knowing you guys were underdogs entering Saturday, did that kind of light a fire under you, give you some motivation? Yes. Um, we came in here. We had a team meeting on Friday. They had lectures on the bus when the bus left. They had lectures on the bus when the bus stopped in Kingsford. When right before the meet, we got back. They, they've been hearing the same stuff, exactly what they got to do all week. And they came back, and they did even better than what they were supposed to. But I held, held, we held every, you know, as coaches, we held every, every athlete responsible for what they had to do. You know, I mean, it's track and, you know, everybody thinks track and field is like a individual sport, which it, it isn't. I coach it as a team sport. You know, you go in football, you got your quarterbacks, you got your linebackers, you got all your different positions, you know. Well, we have our different positions. You know, I got my long jumpers, I got my 400 runners, I got my milers. And, and everybody on the team has a different position. Even if they don't make it to the UPs, they were part of my mile crew. They were part of the hurdle crew, you know. So every 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 athlete that I coach has a, has a responsibility on the team. Coach, where does this title rank for you in terms of being most memorable? Probably, you know, the first one's always nice, but this one was, uh, this one had to take a little bit more thinking. So this would probably be my my, my best one. I mean, this one coming out with all the injuries and holding back on these kids and then letting it go and getting them more mentally ready than physically ready. This was my best win. Tell me about the girls' day. They finished as runner-up. St. Ignace, of course, they were, you know, the team to beat. But Rebecca Lowman gives you a discus title as the team finishes second. Well, we went in there, and uh, I always I always believed that they could take runner-up. And everybody, you know, some of the assistant coaches are like, Oh, you know, you can't, but, but, uh, that we can, you know, and stuff. And I looked at it and I knew we got, you know, we only had, uh, 10 girls competing that day and we got 11 girls on our team. So we went there with, except for one girl, but the one girl did help me in regionals qualify. Um, so with the 10, with the, with basically running the, uh, between 10 and 11 girls and that was the whole team. Through the through the through the year, we never had a thirty two hundred or sixteen hundred relay team, and I knew to be competitive in the UPs, I'd have to find a way to do that. So I had to scratch my head and come up with a way so they could qualify in regionals and still get some in, individuals uh, events done too. You know, so that they were maxed out because if you only got you know around ten girls competing, that's pretty tough. Um, so in I knew we could compete, and then um, regionals, we took third, but we lost first place by four four points. And I thought, hmm, well, we need to tighten up a lot of stuff. So we, we really pushed Lowman to, um, you know, 
my my relay girls relays teams have been successful the last five years. They they're just these girls, just you know, they keep them around and they keep coming back. Um, I have girls that ran relays five years ago for me that come in and they help coach the girls in relays like Anna Terrace and Chloe Scholl. They come in and help, and uh, so the girls never have sloppy handoffs. I got good, really strong athletes in them relays. So the 400 and 800 relay, that was no problem. We knew that we would come in and get a bunch of points, but it was the 1600 and the 3200 relay I was scared of. So we rebuilt them coming into the UPs, and we trained on them and came back and got enough points to claim a uh, title. So between the between the relays, coming in with the relays, boosting Loman up, who came off at ACL surgery, didn't even know that she was going to be able to compete come uh got her in got some good coaching with her and boosted her up that's where where we came in second place well coach tell me about the plan for this off season when do workouts start for the athletes what do you want them to do in the meantime well my philosophy is i want them to play as many sports as they possibly can i believed um as a coach that more sports you're in better athlete you'll be less injuries so i don't care if they you know play basketball or run cross country or play football but be in something um so in a in basically summer programs and basketball and football and everything is going to start in a couple weeks i mean uh, the um everything is a demand with, with kids sports to train them and everything so you know uh the distance kids will be running in some running clubs and doing some race series during the summer and the football players will be going at advantage and doing lifting and speed training and um when, you know when you have a good track team boys track team you have good football teams and you have good cross-country teams that's a good recipe for success and that's where we've been the last couple of years B.J. Pruitt is the head track and field coach at Ishpeming High School. The Hematide boys win the UP title Saturday. Girls finishes runner-ups. Coach, congrats again on all your success, thank you. and thank you for taking the time. All right, thank you. We'll take a timeout. Wisconsin Sports Report next in the Sports Pen on ESPN-UP. Check out the UP's live and local sports talk show, The Sports Pen, weekday afternoons at 4 on ESPN-UP and on the ESPN-UP app. Sports Pen lives here on ESPN-UP, online with our app, Tanner Hoops with you in studio. Charlie Bramer joins us in just a moment to break down what's going on in Wisconsin sports, but first your Sports Center update. Northern Arizona men's basketball coach Jack Murphy has been named new associate head coach at Arizona, his alma mater. Baseball moves, the Mariners have traded veteran slugger Jay Bruce to Philadelphia. Meanwhile, the Nationals signed reliever Fernando Rodney to a minor league deal. And finally, several news outlets are crediting the Simpsons with predicting the outcome of Saturday's Andy Ruiz-Anthony Joshua fight. The third episode of the eighth season, the Homer They Fall, Homer Simpson defeats heavyweight champion boxer Derek Tatum. The Simpsons seem to predict everything. If you look side by side, there are still images. Homer, Ruiz, they have a resemblance to each other, and they're the ones who end up beating the feared world champions. I remember that, the the Dredrick Tatum-Homer Simpson fight. How many years ago was that? Uh, was that mid-90s? Late-90s at, at, at latest, yeah. And, you know, obviously, growing up being a 90s kid, it was all about that. that what, a, what a great, that was one of the, Oh, that's one of the more memorable episodes, and obviously, Dredrick Tatum, he's got the the uh, Mike Tyson lisp going. Yeah. <laughs> it's pretty funny stuff. And it comes back to seem like they can predict the future how many years later? Almost a little over 20 years ago. 
Well, when they make, you know, like 10,000 episodes or whatever, obviously I'm way exaggerating, but they're going to hit on some things, right? Yeah, they've been around 30 years. They might as well have some stuff that's coming true. That's exactly right. It's amazing. Right. It's amazing what they can do. But I tell you what, it's amazing what Wisconsin sports teams can do. It's amazing what Zach Davies is doing right now. He's quietly moved to 6-0. and I don't think there's a pitcher who's moved more quietly to a 6-0 and record this year. Literally and figuratively, very, very quiet. You know, a, a nice major league fastball has that whistle or has that, you know, that, that sound to it. I don't think his does. Um, he, he, it's not fast enough. Um, and the whiffs he's been getting from left-handers with his changeup. Great hitter like Josh Bell yesterday, whiffing over and over. I think he had 17 swings and misses in the four-game series against the Brewers. So that was, that's pretty unheard of for a guy at his caliber, uh, how locked in he is. Um, and, and yeah, Zach Davies being able to give him the length. The Brewers have gone extra innings four of the last five Saturdays, and, and three of those five games went five hours or longer. And um, Zach Davies was a pitcher the following Sunday, always, you know, day game Sunday. And he's been able to give him the length to get them back on track. And uh, last week when I was on, I said I really thought this would be the stretch, looking at what the Cubs had going on. Just, and, and it's not that the Cubs' schedule is difficult. It's just it almost seems like they dilly-dally a little, for back of, lack of a better term, mm-hmm. um, with, with teams like the Reds. And, you know, they we're going to be facing the Reds. And they did. They struggled. And I thought it was a good chance for the Brewers if, uh, you know, if, if they could finally solve this this uh, puzzle that has been the Pittsburgh Pirates for them the last couple years uh, in particular. Um, and they did, and, and they were able to overtake the Cubs for first place. And uh, that's another thing that I think uh, gets some light shed on it here today, and, and I'm, I'm really proud for them. Yesterday they looked really good, particularly Davies setting the tone. They came off that 13-inning marathon where they really needed someone to give him a quality start. Davies does that and more. He wanted his chance. He was begging counsel to let him go out and try to be the first brewer to throw a complete game since 2016. But I tell you what, he did walk the tight rope. It wasn't a dominant performance, and there were plenty of runners in scoring position for Pittsburgh, yet he always navigated out of trouble. They get on base or not, as long as they don't cross home plate, you're doing your job. Yeah, and, and, and having guys in scoring position, particularly at third base with less than two outs, you know, he, was, he was able to wiggle out of some jams. And I believe he only had one clean inning out of his eight innings of work, eight-plus innings. And, and obviously a few of them, um, there, was some, there was a few catcher interferences. You know, Manny Pena hadn't started a game in over three weeks. He had a few catcher interference. Um, but to be able to pick up a win against a team, um, obviously the Pirates were going to be a little shorthanded too, you know, um, without their starting catcher and, you know, guys like Corey Dickerson and whatnot also coming off of obviously playing the extra inning games. They, that was their opponent on Saturday was the Brewers, so they, they were uh, on equal ground as far as that goes. But for the Brewers to be able to have guys like Lorenzo Cain out of the lineup, Mike Moustakas is out of the lineup, Aaron Perez then at third base and Manny Pini behind the plate, um, and, and, you know, Jesus Aguilar still struggling, although over the last month, he's, his stats are surprisingly decent. It just goes to show how, 
how uh, how he really struggled. He has almost 30 RBIs over his last 30 games, which for for his overall numbers, it, that's kind of like, whoa, you know, he, he's really been lacking. Brewer's first baseman OPS is near the bottom of the league, but, but they're still picking up their RBIs. Eric Thames then did have a big game yesterday. He was kind of the hero with the bat. And and Zach Davies making his timely pitches, particularly being able to throw the changeup when he was even behind in account. And when you can throw a breaking ball, uh, Yuli Chassin showed us that last year. You can throw that breaking ball when you're behind in account or an off-speed pitch behind in account. Uh, you can you can really do some damage. Well, I tell you what, you talk about Thames, and it's good for him to kind of get back on track. It seemed a little detrimental to a guy who was doing so well early on. He was left off the playoff roster last season. There was just not a spot for him, despite how well he was playing. Had a little bit of a slow start to the year this year, and it seems like he's starting to find himself, especially with so many guys out of the lineup. It's crucial. Yeah, and, and he'll... He he hits his home runs in bunches, so, so if yesterday was any... Anything of an indicator, hopefully he'll, if the Brewers continue to see right-handing pitching, he's going to be getting starts. So unless Jesus Aguilar goes on a hot streak against some lefties, you know, he's going to have to do that before he's going to be facing any righties. Right. So Eric Thames is going to be getting the bulk of the playing time at first base, and that's okay. I mean, his on-base percentage is pushing 400, Mm -hmm. and, and even when he's not getting hits, he'll still take his walks. And yesterday he was getting his hits and taking walks, so great game. Well, I tell you what, a chance for maybe everybody to get back on track with the schedule that's coming up. You talked about that, how they kind of went through the grind already. Now they've got some series where they can get a few wins, maybe some sweeps. They have the off day today and then Miami tomorrow. So if there's any time to get your hitters back on track, this might be the series. Yeah, and and the only thing that I'm I you know is a little bit worrisome is the Brewers have played particularly well against opponents above 500 this year, but they have lost several games, more than a handful of games to teams that you know, in particularly starters without experience and guys that you know this you know you think at the end of the game you know this is just not good. This is not going to be good when we're looking at the end of the season and they're one game behind the Cubs and and you're like all these games they beat so many good teams and so hopefully they can really do some damage you don't want to be losing series to a Marlin coming into the season a lot of people thought starting pitching might be Milwaukee's weakness Davies obviously has raised eyebrows his 6-0 and start but Chase Anderson is scheduled to go tomorrow night against Miami and he's quietly 3-0 and yeah Chase Anderson he he's 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 a guy that it's just so strange. I don't really know how to put it. He will struggle. His whip will be really high. Um, you know, his expected ERA will be through the roof, and in his actual ERA, will somehow he'll pull it out. It'll be somewhere around four, and he just gives the Brewers a chance to win, and and that's what they're looking for every time out. It seems like their starting pitching has really been, you know, home run or bust. Gio Gonzalez's arrival, how it seemed like it was stabilizing the rotation. Now he's goes on the DL with what they call dead arm. Mm-hmm. Jimmy Nelson makes his long, long-awaited um, return from what was just such a strange yet horrible injury. And he had been pitching decent. Uh, you like the, the length he was getting. 
but he at times was getting hit at AAA. Obviously, guys at AAA, um, I don't think there's ever been more talent in um, in AAA all throughout the leagues um, than there is now. I mean, the the stars that they have coming up and the guys that down in AAA that Jimmy Nelson was facing, and then you also look at you know Travis Shaw is going to be coming back and. He started off really, really slow in his minor league rehab start. Ended up batting around 250, only slugging around 350. And and you look at that, you know, that's a bona fide major leaguer. And these guys are going down there as bona fide major leaguers, and and they're struggling a little bit. So it really goes to show um, the talent level across the board at AAA ball right now, even Double A ball. Hopefully that actually helps prepare them more for their comeback to the majors. I've heard before, I don't know if I agree with this, but I can see where there's truth to it. I want to get your thoughts on it. Former Major League, I'm trying to remember who it was, uh, was tuned into a broadcast name I can't come up with off the top of my head. Happens to me all the time. He says that AA is actually harder than AAA. Because AA, you've got a lot more rising prospects. AAA, you've got a lot of guys that are on their way down, trying to work their way back up to the majors. AA, you get a lot of the guys of the future. He always thought that AA was a tougher step for him than AAA was. I have heard that before. Um, Obviously, I would need a lot more experience um, watching minor league baseball. But just just from what I've seen, um, it seems like guys going from AA to AAA um, have a much easier time of it overall and are and are able to maintain and hold serve their numbers um, going to AAA from AA a lot easier than going from A to AA. It definitely seems like the jump from A to AA is much more difficult. I mean, guys were years at AAA before they got called up to the majors, and, and that that is a testament to how good AA is and how deep these squads are. And I think something that really boosts that is so many teams having multiple rookie-level teams, rookie-level clubs, so so there's just a lot more talent being funneled in through, you know, there's still the same amount of AA ball, there's still the same amount of AAA, but there's a lot more guys trying to get into it from from rookie and A and high A. So, So it really funnels them into this, place where the talent gets congested and i i really see point he's making I, i've heard bill schroeder the rock um there's a few rocks that that call wisconsin for wisconsin sports teams but um he's the rock of the brewers former catcher uh color commentator analyst and he speaks about that a lot how how surprised he is and 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 with how double a talent has grown by leaps and bounds and once you make it to double a you have a very good shot at making it to the majors we are a little over a third of the way through the mlb season let me give you the playoff picture way too early in the american league the division leaders are minnesota houston and new york tampa bay and texas currently hold the two wild card spots in the national league los angeles milwaukee and philadelphia lead their divisions chicago and atlanta round out the playoff picture as it stands right now if there's any of those 10 teams in playoff position right now which of them is most likely to drop off the face of the earth here in the back end of the season i i could see some potential flip-flopping as far as you know division winners and and wild card teams but especially from the national league you know if you said uh, a third away from the season this was going to be this you know this is who's going to be in pole position 
That's that's about what everybody was predicting. Is I would it agree not? with what they have right now. I mean, the Rockies are a good team, but I don't know after their slow start. Are they good enough to be able to catch Atlanta or Chicago? I just think those teams are too good, maybe not to win their division, but certainly to be playoff teams. And just with how streaky Colorado's shown for years now, they have shown to be so streaky. They've gone on some of the best winning streaks and some of the worst losing streaks at the most unopportune times, which obviously I don't think I've ever heard of a good time to go on a losing streak, Mm. Um, but the Rockies seem to find the worst times. In the last few years, teams like Arizona and the Rockies and, and teams like the Indians, teams who were really a part of it, it now I see them more as just 500 teams that are going to have to really make a tough choice at the trade deadline, trying to acquire some talent. I really actually I, I think it's a bold move, and I think it's the right move, and I have a lot of respect for what they're doing up there in Seattle right now. Mm-hmm. The moves they made last winter, I think they were more than expecting to be sellers at the trade deadline this year and with the moves they made last winter and it set them up to have guys to move this summer that would have a lot of value to get them talent kind of like what tampa bay and pittsburgh have been trying to do recently they're making trades at the trade deadline but remaining somewhat in contention if not for this year really for next year acquiring guys you know not not rookie level guys or or high a guys but acquiring double a talent triple a talent that could keep them in contention just in a year or two and and i really like the move and the strategy for for teams like seattle to just admit who they are what they are and what they're going to do moving forward and it's going to be interesting to see some of these teams that have really been the cream of the crop the last few years who is who else is going to be first and bold enough to admit who they are and where they are and and make the moves necessary to get themselves back in contention in it within the next few years because that's not easy for front office to admit that they're in that position well Seattle at one point was twelve and two to start the year they now find themselves twelve games below five hundred they're starting to sell out Toronto Marcus Stroman says he's not having fun they're seventeen below five hundred if there is any team in playoff position right now I don't think we'll be there at the end of the year it's Texas I don't think they're going to make the playoffs. Certainly, certainly. I think Boston's going to end up figuring it out. They're just too good that they are going to surpass Texas and get in. I also don't think the Cardinals are going to do it, despite having a great start to the year. Probably going to be okay with you, right? It's certainly okay with me and and the Cardinals. I mean, people talk about the Brewers-Cubs rivalry, you know, really getting... Uh, gaining some steam these last few years and it, years and it has but that that cardinals brewers i from from my standpoint as a brewers fan and i think it's mainly because the cardinals just pound out the brewers um for have pounded out the brewers for years um finally until last year the brewers were able to take that season series these teams are gonna have to make some tough choices and and it's going to be interesting to see who's willing to step up and do what it takes um I just I just don't know as far as you know like teams like the Twins who are playing so well right now where do they look to improve there's always ways to improve it's going to be interesting to see that as well where are these good teams going to look to improve obviously a team like the Brewers it's easy you know where they have to improve but a team like the Twins it's not so easy All right now they're talking with Craig Kimbrell trying to improve the back end of that bullpen they already have a good combination with Blake Parker Taylor Rogers then you had Kimbrell that's a pretty lethal bullpen. 
and that is exactly where I was going with this. That's what's most exciting to me about the fact that it's the MLB draft. These guys are going to be available without forfeiting a draft pick, and teams are going to be hopping all over them. And I think we might see some smaller market teams be able to make some play on these available players. Oh, I tell you what, last thing on the MLB, you can go to our Twitter page and vote on our fan poll of the day. The question of the day is, who will finish with the worst record in baseball this season? The options are the Orioles, the Royals, the Marlins, or other. Last I saw, other is winning. I don't know who besides those three people are going to think is going to have the worst record in baseball, but I would think it'd be one of those three. I would definitely think it would be one of those three. However, if a team really, really sells... Um, they could put themselves in a position, you know, to to lose 50 out of 80 games and and be right down there in the in the cellar. Maybe it's a lot of pessimistic Tiger fans thinking that's what's going to happen to them. I I think I think you're <laughs> onto something with that for sure. The Wisconsin Sports Update with Charlie Bramer. Glad to have you here, man. We'll see you next week. Thank you so much, Tanner. And I think next week we might expand it a little bit. To, we'll get into some Tigers talk because right. I am more than impressed with uh, the number of pitching prospects they have. And I think it'd be fun to discuss some of that. So I, I, I can't get enough of my top 30 prospects list. Well, with that, let's take a timeout. When we come back, we'll recap the NBA Finals Game 2 last night. Even Steven heading to the Golden State. Plus, NHL Stanley Cup returns tonight next in the Sports Pen on ESPN-UP. Check out the UP's live and local sports talk show, The Sports Pen. Weekday afternoons at 4 on ESPN-UP and on the ESPN-UP app. If you missed any part of the show today, check it out on demand. Get our free mobile app from the Apple iStore or Google Play. Just search up ESPN-UP. Tanner Hoops with you as we wind down to the 5 o'clock hour. Glad to have you along. Let's talk NBA, NHL finals, what have you. But before we do so... We had one of the biggest upsets, maybe of our generation, certainly in the sports generation over the weekend. Andy Ruiz was not supposed to have anything to do with Anthony Joshua. And yet somehow they matched up. And what's even more surprising is Andy Ruiz ended up winning the fight. He's somewhat of the boxing equivalent of Bartolo Colon. And he beat maybe the best heavyweight fighter in the world. This was a hype event for Anthony Joshua. He wanted to make his American debut at Madison Square Garden. Most of the crowd came over across the pond with him. Most of the crowd in attendance Saturday night were British. It was like a home field advantage for Joshua. And yet somehow by the end of the night, Andy Ruiz and all 200 and out of shape of him is standing over Joshua. He's the winner. So I tell you what, if you're thinking about that diet, forget it because Andy Ruiz is the inspiration. I went out and I ate a triple cheeseburger yesterday and I celebrated I didn't celebrate the fight. I was going to do that anyway. But that's my excuse. Because Andy Ruiz is showing you you don't need hardcore training and strict dieting. Just hit the drive-thru and then grab a summer shandy. I'm excited to see if they can do it again because I guarantee there's going to be a rematch before the end of the year. And will Lightning be able to strike twice for Andy Ruiz? If anything, that should inspire the Toronto Raptors because that is somewhat of the level of upset they're trying to achieve. They lose last night 109-104. to The series is even at one game apiece as they head back to Golden State. Klay Thompson was the best player on the floor for Golden State last night, but he ended up leaving the game with hamstring tightness. His status is unclear going forward. Let me tell you this. I don't know when Kevin Durant is going to come back, if or when. I think he will come back and play in this series at some point. 
But missing Klay Thompson is going to hurt this Warrior team more than missing Kevin Durant. And that doesn't mean that Klay Thompson's a better player than Kevin Durant. But they like playing with Klay Thompson more than they like playing with Kevin Durant. Klay Thompson is one of them. Warrior fans like seeing Klay Thompson play instead of Kevin Durant because he was bred through the system. He's a true native. Who is this year's NBA Finals MVP? Is it Steph Curry or is it Kawhi Leonard? Steph had 34 points in a game one loss. Wasn't enough. He didn't have a whole lot of help around him. But it still never felt like Steph took over that game, like he became playoff Steph. The clutch shooter that we've seen him be so many times throughout his career never felt like he achieved that in game one. Last night, he never really achieved it. When the team was cold for about five minutes without a field goal, where was Steph? He had 23 points, but he didn't get it efficiently. It wasn't an MVP caliber night for Steph. Out of both teams, Kawhi Leonard has been the most consistent scorer in the series. But there hasn't been a real Kawhi takeover either, it feels like. So between those two, who is this year's NBA Finals MVP? It's probably going to be decided by whoever wins the series. Numbers-wise, Kawhi has the edge over Steph. But there is something to be said about the attention that Steph draws just with his presence on the floor. And you really saw that last night in the fourth quarter when Thompson was out. Because then the defense keys in on him. Then the defense has all eyes on Steph. Because he is the facilitator. He is the conductor. But the thing is, once Steph gets all that attention, even though he can't get his numbers like we know he can, suddenly, by coincidence, everybody else on the floor gets better. When you're triple teaming one guy, Ingadala gets better. Livingston gets better. Looney. Cousins. And certainly Draymond Green. So while Steph's numbers may not be as good as Kawhi Leonard through the first two games of this series... There is definitely something to be said about how valuable Steph is just by being on the floor because of how much attention he draws from the other defense. It makes his teammates better. But I tell you what, let me throw something really crazy at you. You can call me crazy if you want. I know this is a hot take, but I want to say it anyway because I don't even know that I'm going to advocate for it, but it does need to be talked about. Who's to say DeMarcus Cousins could not be this year's finals MVP? Two games into this series, he's got a triple-double and one assist shy of a triple-double. He moves so well for his size, he handles the ball well. He gets to the basket, has the scorer's mentality, he can shoot from the outside. And you know what, for the stereotype around Draymond Green, he is a much smarter basketball player than people give him credit for. His basketball IQ is among the best in the NBA. He doesn't get enough credit for that. You can say the same thing for Iguodala. I'm not saying that Draymond should win NBA Finals MVP this year, but there is absolutely a case for him. Tell you what, through two games, my prediction is still holding. I said Warriors in five, Toronto gets the opener, Golden State takes the next four. So far, that's holding, but with no Clay Thompson, that worries me a lot. I don't know what his status is going forward, but I don't know that Golden State is going to win this series without both him and Kevin Durant. At some point, experience... Being there before can only get you so far. You need guys like Clay Thompson and Kevin Durant on your squad. At some point, you're going to need either Clay or Kevin Durant. One or the other, probably both of them. I think they'll get both of them back. But you can't do it without those two, without both of those two. I tell you what, before we go over to hockey in the final couple minutes of the show, here's your stat of the day. This is amazing to me. Thought I had a good one. I didn't know if I could top last week. This one might be it, though. 
all the great players that John Calipari has produced as the head coach at the University of Kentucky, out of all those players, last night DeMarcus Cousins became the first to appear in an NBA Finals. How about that? You think of the dominant college teams Kentucky's had a few years ago, they sent seven guys to one draft class? Two guys that didn't even start? And of all those dominant Kentucky teams that John Calipari's had, none of them have produced an NBA Finals player until now. Well, I tell you what, we go to the NHL because the Stanley Cup playoffs resume tonight. Game four in St. Louis as the Blues look to bounce back against Boston. We knew the Blues were struggling on home ice this year, but we had no idea until Saturday night. An absolute butt-kicking as Boston wins 7-2. Craig Berube decided to pull Jordan Bennington for Jake Allen. Does say Bennington will start again tonight, however. You know, and you can look at the box score, and a lot of things went wrong for St. Louis. Obviously, it was disappointing on Saturday night. But one of the biggest things that hurt them was their inability to stay out of the penalty box. They have to be better tonight. They just have to. Boston is good enough 5-on-5, but when you give them four power play opportunities and they score on all of them, you're not going to win. You're just not going to win, not at this stage of the season. I talked about with Ryan Stig here last week how it's been a lot of the role players who have been stepping up for each side. We're waiting to see which team's top line starts scoring. Well, it was Boston the other night. Bergeron had a goal. Pasternak scored. Even Tory Krug, I know he's a defenseman, but on Saturday night, he did something nobody's done since 1994. And that is record four points in an NHL Stanley Cup final game as a defenseman. Nobody had done it since Brian Leach back in 1994. In fact, only four players have ever recorded four points in a cup final game as a defenseman. Only one has scored more than four points in a single cup game, and that was all the way back in 1942 when Eddie Bush recorded five. I said Jaden Schwartz was my pick to win the Conn Smythe if St. Louis won the cup. Well, tonight's a must win. As good as they've been away from home in these playoffs, I don't see them winning three in a row, even if two of them are in Boston. Boston's top line finally got going. Took him three games to do it. Tonight, Tarasenko has to be better. Schwartz has to be better. O'Reilly has to be better. Your top line has got to start producing if you're going to have a chance in this series. i got a few things to bring to your attention before we sign off. One, today is opening day of the Superior Land Baseball League here in the Central UP. You've got about 100 guys with high school baseball experience. It's an amateur adult league here in the UP, and they put on some quality baseball Opening day is tonight. Games in Gwynn and Nagani at 6.30. They are playing in Channing at 7. It's a fun league. It's going to be a lot of fun to take in and be a part of. I'm going to have a guest on tomorrow. We're going to break it down more for you and recap opening day. Also, tonight at 7.30, Game 1 of the Women's College World Series as Oklahoma takes on UCLA, a best-of-three series in Oklahoma City. Top two teams in the country. Not a lot of drama. Top two, the best two in the country. Oklahoma, UCLA are doing battle for the crown. That is coming up tonight at 7.30, and we'll recap it for you tomorrow. We'll preview the rest of the series then as well. That is it for us on this Monday afternoon. As always, I appreciate you tuning in. Hope to have you back on tomorrow, same time and place, 4 Eastern, 3 Central. Signing off on ESPN-UP, WZAM, Ishpeming Marquette. I'm Tanner Hoops, and thanks for listening to ESPN-UP.